Hello, and welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to be uh, is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end, where we're also going to share some exciting opportunities. And please feel free to share this with others who you know will also find it of interest. So today, as I was preparing to have this really interesting and I believe fun conversation, something brought me to the movie Wizard of Oz. And if you're not familiar, definitely worth looking at, a classic film. And at one point, after Dorothy comes home from her experience, she looks around at all her loved ones and says, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Now that's not to say in an inappropriate way that our guest today is my heart's desire. Let's not make that too, to over flatter him or make it uh, seem that that's where I'm going. But what's so fascinating as I realized in, in having this conversation, and if you've been following inspiration from Zion, especially the last number of weeks, I've had the privilege of hosting conversations with people who are from my own backyard, literally my neighbors here in Efrat in the Judean mountains. And so much so with today's conversation that I could open up the window behind me and throw a rock at where and, and hit where our guest is sitting at the moment. Um, and, and I love having that because it just shows that there's so many great conversations to have right here, even without having to struggle to look so far. And I hope you'll agree. Uh, this is a completely unscripted conversation. So I hope we'll all agree that at the end, this is one of the good ones. So today, I'm really grateful to host Shraga Evers. Now, Shraga is not, is not only just a neighbor. But his family, his parents and siblings, live here in my apartment building on the ground floor. And, and the, cr the crazy thing is because I take the elevator to the parking lot and don't go to the ground floor. I don't really see them a lot, but I like them um, as much as I don't see them. And I met Shraga only for the first time a few weeks ago, and I was impressed. I'm impressed by a really thoughtful person with a long and diverse professional background somebody who's got a whole lot of community service um, involvement. And we talk about community service here in Israel. That's particularly in the Jewish community. But Shraga is originally from the Netherlands. So we're going to talk about his upbringing there and what brought him here to Israel. And specifically today, we're having a conversation in the context of his capacity as CEO of a real important organization called Shivat Zion an organization that's responsible for helping to increase Aliyah, the, the uh, return of the Jewish people specifically from Europe and Central and South America, and not just bring them here, but also help them stay, make it comfortable, make it easy to get over the hurdles. And we'll talk about what some of those hurdles are, because we're both immigrants, and we both, we both run into, I'm sure, more than our fair share. Um, Shraga has... A long, a very long and impressive resume, which is professional, educational, and you're going to hear today, rather than me reading the essay, you're going to hear the fruit of that. You're going to hear how thoughtful he is, how, uh, how, how because of everything that he's done in his career in community service, through his professional career, and through his educational background, that he's really so well suited for now, this season, as, as spearheading this important organization. So Shraga, um, we don't see each other enough around the neighborhood. I have the privilege of seeing you because I always like to record visually, even though we're doing a podcast that's only an audio. 
Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad for us to be able to make the time and welcome to Inspiration from Zion. Thank you very much. Welcome Good morning. Yeah. So, you know what? Before, I always like to start with guests like you. Before we go into the the, the Hebrew Yiddish word is tachlis, the substance of our conversation. I want to get to know you. I want our listeners to get to know you. You were born in the Netherlands. Um, and I'm interested in that as well. Not not what not only what brought you here to Israel and when and and the things that you've done, but your but before we even do that, your family background. I look back hmm, almost a hundred years at when my grandparents were able to flee Europe. Um, and thank God they did, because otherwise I wouldn't be here and and none of my family would be here because they would have all been murdered in the Holocaust. Talk about your own family background. How does, uh, where does this nice Jewish family and how you end up in the Netherlands? How long was your family in the Netherlands as part of our 2000 year old diaspora? Right. So indeed, uh, growing up in, as a Jew in the Netherlands, post, post war is post Holocaust is, uh, something very interesting that you only start to understand when you take a step back, when you get out of that, uh, surrounding. So my, uh, parents, both come from Jewish families. My father from a Dutch Jewish family that have been staying, uh, residing in the Netherlands for about five generations at least, really incorporated. With uh, with the generations, they became less uh, religious. They uh, joined the socialist movement, um, leaning towards even, I would say, between socialism and communism, uh, very hard workers, um, diamond cutters and Educated people on one hand, on the other hand, um, um, laborers that, which was also the reason why they joined the socialist movement, of course. So they were very Jewish, but not very much uh, practicing, even pre-war. That's uh, my father, my uh, father's side. Uh, from my mother's side, um, one one side is from uh, originally from uh, Lithuania, and the other side from Germany. Uh, my grandmother's side from Germany, they had a very big uh, agricultural company, uh, which in '33 was seized by the Nazis, and they understood where it was heading. So they fled they, just over the border uh, to the Netherlands, which borders straight in the east, uh, in the east part of Germany. Uh, sorry, the west part of Germany uh, yeah. borders uh, the Netherlands, um, and they re- uh, they reached Enschede, which is a city right right across the border. Um, my grandfather from other side was residing one or two generations in the Netherlands, um, but where before that from Poland and uh, Lithuania, that area, and fled or either as economic, uh, uh, for economic reasons or because of prosecution or probably a combination of both. Um, what happened in the Netherlands um, during the Holocaust was exceptional. The The Nazis saw the Dutch as brothers, as Aryans, just like them, and wanted to incorporate them as as such. Um, they didn't want to create a much upheaval in the in the in the persecution of the Jews, but they had the same plan. And actually, the result was that the um, Dutch government and the police, almost in its total, in in, in its complete functionality, just surrendered to the Nazis and started to collaborate with them. Um, which resulted in the Netherlands being the highest um, rate of Jews that were killed, I think, just before, just after Poland. But they are competing in the first place. While in the streets, there wasn't a lot of violence against Jews. They did it very in a very smart way, with a lot of good administration around it, a lot of collaboration from the Dutch government officer bodies and police, etc., I just want to interrupt. You used the word uh, you said in a in a smart way. You don't mean that in a good way. You mean that they were ma- they manipulated the situation well. Right, exactly. Meaning uh, to seize uh, first to seize the possessions of the Jews. Yeah. Uh, slowly excluding them more and more, so that whenever they started the deportations to the concentration camp, um, it wasn't felt very much by the by the regular by the general population. Um. And it resulted in a very high rate of uh, Jews that were murdered, uh, over 90%, I think 94% if I don't mistake, um, which resulted, but they have stayed a very, very few number of years in the Netherlands. 
So administratively, meaning the, the synagogues, the organization and stuff like that, uh, it wasn't uh, harassed to the ground like they did in Germany. So after the war, you had a lot of organization, but very few Jews. Okay. So that resulted in, an, in a community where you have um, relatively a lot of synagogues, organizations, but very few Jews to serve them. Uh, adding to that, that uh, add, add to that, that uh, there's a lot of assimilation. People slowly getting away, drifting away from religion in the 60s, 70s. Um, add to that, some people making aliyah. Um, many people being traumatized coming back after the camps, uh, being or hiding, being traumatized by the Holocaust and going to America, Canada, Australia, yeah. New Zealand. And, um, and, and the Dutch Jewish community, you, you mentioned, maybe only second to the number, the percentage. Uh, of Jews who were murdered to Poland. Poland was more than 3 million Jews and 3 right. million out of 3.3 or 3.4 million Jews from Poland were murdered. But the Dutch was only what in the community was a uh, hundred thousand or so. 120,000 Jews. Right. So you're talking right. about left over uh, 10,000 people. Right. Um, left over, I think 20 something. 20. Uh, right. It's a very small country also. It's right. the size right. of Israel basically. Yeah. So in in yeah, but the same result percentage wise. So growing up in a Jewish community like that, it's it's basically fi- the feeling of living in a memorial. Ah, wow! You see plaques everywhere. There's wow. there isn't many. There isn't much. There's much uh, going on. A very a lot of older people. Um, not a lot of growth. Not at, yeah, very much. The Holocaust puts a very um, heavy mark on the on the Jewish community, which it's okay. it's always there. And now, the most famous Dutch Jew, I think, arguably, is Anne Frank. Uh, right. And also her family was German and, and immigrated. They fled when things were no longer safe in Germany. Um, does her story, first of all, anyone who don't, doesn't know who I'm speaking about needs to go online right now and get the diary of Anne Frank um, and, and read her book. But growing up there, it, it was she and her story in any way meaningful particularly something that you related to was it iconic you know we our children here in israel as we have the privilege of raising them connect to the national stories of israel and the jewish people here in our land was that something that you were connected to particularly as a jewish child young man growing up in the netherlands um to be honest my my grandmother was in the class of her sister margot frank um and she was deported on the last train, just like family and their the, uh, and the Franklin family. Uh, she was deported to Auschwitz on the last transportation that went out from Westerbork, which is the transition camp in the Netherlands. Right. So she she actually grew up, and she found that she she always said that she found Anna a little bit like a bit annoying, a little <laughs> bit uh, you know this kid that always knows it better uh, <laughs> and has something to say. Um, so to be honest, it it. it for some reason, her story was very, uh, it got a lot of PR and attention, but in essence, of course, many kids have gone through the same experiences. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is iconic. It is a representative for what, what, what was going on. There was a lot of my, in my grandmother's autobiography. Um, she writes about, um, in the thirties when the, the Dutch government didn't want to allow the Jewish for, uh, refugees from Germany in. Um, and then they forced the Jewish community to pay per refugee. And then they, they were marching the Jewish refugees through, through the Jewish neighborhood. So as a condition that um, if a Jewish family would take a Jewish refugee in, they, they could stay. And ironically, or it's very sad, actually, the transition camp that was built in the end was used to tra- transit Jews to the uh, concentration camps was built with Jewish money. Ah, because the Dutch government forced the Jewish community to pay pay that for the Jewish refugees from from Germany. Fascinating. So, yeah. So um, indeed, now that nowadays we see that uh, the world is always teaching Israel a lot of lessons how we should behave. Sure. Uh, towards whatever, whether it's Ukraine or whether whether it's Palestinians or other other things. Um, in similar situations, or not even similar, I think they're much much less. Um. Um, the, the the European com- uh, countries or the countries that are teaching us now a lot of very good lesson have behaved very differently towards us. Yeah, but I guess there's different rules when you deal with Jews. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, we know that unfortunately. Right. 
Okay, so th that's great background. I mean, I actually am really fascinated by it. I, uh, my European orientation is through my family from Poland, most of whom were murdered. Um, right. But it's so, okay. So now you're a young Jewish man growing up in a very small uh, Jewish community in the Netherlands. And at some point, you get the itch to make Aliyah, to come back to Israel. And you came here, you're young still, but you came here as a much younger man. You served in the army. You got your education here. What motivated that? Right. So, of course, everything is related to, to what I uh, um, told before. Not everything, but... I would say you have push and pull factors in 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 my personal Aliyah story. First of all, my grandmother who survived Auschwitz. She was in hiding. She was also uh, betrayed, and uh, she would always say, "Go to Israel. Go to Israel. Don't stay here. Don't stay here." Like even if you wouldn't ask for it, she would she would uh, rem remind you you should do that. So the whole and, and looking at the at the narrative that's living in the in the heads of Jews in Europe. Um, in Western Europe, um, the Holocaust always a factor. Um, to make a decision to go to Israel, Israel sits very deep. So that that's that. Then you had anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism in the nineties, uh, early two thousand, where I, when I grew up in the in, in Amsterdam, a lot of uh, Muslim immigrants, mainly from Morocco and Turkey, that would uh, would be cursing mostly, spitting, um, little physical. So it got more and more physical over the years. Uh, so it also that gives you the feeling, okay, this is not my home. But even in in uh, college, um, being in college, for example, being attacked with anti-Semitic remarks, it always, even if it wasn't that bad, that threatening um, physically, you would always get the feeling it's not your home. So that's that's how we can conclude the push factors, which, uh, of course, is not a very good motivator to do something constructive. I always learned in, in Jewish studies, if you want to build something, it has to come from constructive um, uh, motivations um, and push factors are not 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 like that. Um, and then we have, of course, the whole Jewish um, tradition. We live in we live in great times. Um, open any Tanakh, any uh, read read prophecies of Nehemiah, of uh, Ezra, of uh, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah. You'll see a lot of uh, prophecies. Actually, they're now um, being realized in front of our eyes. Yeah. So that's a very strong call to take part of that. Um, the connection, the real connection to the land, um, looking at the future. Israel's everything is about building. It's about uh, it's about building up the Jewish community, the Jewish future. It's about redemption. It's a lot of great things that uh, you feel very uh, attracted to. Uh, which were a very big motivator uh, to make Aliyah, to come to Israel. Okay, I want, I want to dig deeper on that for a moment, because I think it's important to where our conversation is going to go. But first, I want to take a quick break. Let me share a quick story. Back in college, I studied Hebrew as my foreign language. We were a class of American Jews and one Christian student, Tim. One day, I asked Tim why he was studying Hebrew. I really didn't get it. He explained that he was the son of a pastor and wanted to understand the Bible in its original language. He was insightful beyond my understanding at the time. Recently, I was introduced to eTeacher, which allows people all over the world to learn Hebrew, to develop a foundation of the original language of the scripture that's so important to us as Jews and Christians, and to gain an understanding that Tim understood, laying a critical path for understanding the Bible's original language and a foundation for Christians to understand both the modern state of Israel and the Jewish people on a more personal basis. eTeacher offers programs to study both biblical and modern Hebrew taught by experienced scholars through an interactive curriculum. The Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation is pleased to partner with eTeacher and offer you a 15% introductory discount. You can register through the link in the show notes or be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to forward those links to you. Okay, Shraga, I, there, there were some things that were very intense. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you noticed, I just had to make some notes. But but when you're talking, and I'm glad you did, the prophetic significance of it all, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, all of these things that we have as our traditions, 
which preceded our diaspora, right? It's This is foreshadowing what's going to happen thousands of years later. Are, are you saying that as a young man sitting in the Netherlands, you perceived that? Or, you're, or are you saying now that you're here, you realize it? Well, I, I perceived it, right. Uh, I perceived it uh, to a certain extent. Um, and being in Israel every day more and more, uh, understanding and realizing the realizing it more and deeper um even very small things that you you, you see in the prophecies that that you see in front of your eyes happening like what uh, okay because i see that but let's hear from you what like what 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 what, what, what makes your jaw just drop that you realize you're in a prophetic picture well first of all take psalm 126 it was said by by king david right that that we're like dreaming when returning to zion Right, King David, he wrote it in in during the first temple. Yeah, uh, so, so you could say you could say that it has to do before the first temple. Sorry, you could say it has to do with the second temple, um, but I doubt it. Um, um, but but even so, even so, it could, it's probably um, relevant for both for both our redemption right now um, as well as uh, the redemption of the second temple. Um, so that's a that's a very strong prophecy. A prophecy where we see that um, the Jews are coming back, and we can't believe our eyes what's what's happening here. It's very interesting that all these years, any any time that the Jews were exiled from the land, no one would, no one cared about the land. They just let it let it uh, yes. They let it rest, and no one no one did anything with it. They, it was actually shameful. If you fight so hard for something, and then you just leave it, that means that you probably didn't like the land. You probably had a, had an issue with the Jews. Um, then taking the books of Nehemia, uh, uh, let's take Nehemia as a very clear example of what's happening today. Um, the big, our biggest crime being that we built the land. It's very interesting. I, um, I don't think there's a lot of comparison in the world where the biggest crime of someone is that they want to build, build, build something up. <laughs> and not even on the expense of others, but let's just build something up for themselves or for yes. the land. Um, looking at Nehemiah, the buildup also of the resistance against the Jews. First, they're laughing at them, right? And then, then there's one guy that is of some opposition. They want to join also. They and then and then there's another guy, and suddenly there's an Arab guy, and then suddenly there's the Admoni, and there's like all the different people that suddenly come into the picture. And there's a very fierce opposition, and they even succeed to convince. There is a big declaration, right, of Korish, who says, uh, um, "I don't know his English name." But in, in the Tanakh, it's Koresh, who said he has a vision and, and he says the Jews should go back to the land. So it's a declaration, like the Balfour Declaration, and he similar. Oh, very nice. And then later on, there's so much resistance that they actually succeed to convince the later government to cancel that. Mm. And we see, we see it happening. The, the, so with the British mandate. Interesting. Um, the whole reason for the mandate was to secure a Jewish homeland. In the end, today they were working, those, that mandate was working against us. Um, that's that, and then also um, the hardship of building up, especially in the beginning. Uh, you see it back in the book of uh, Ezra. You see, you see not many people are are answering the call. Um, not many people are answering the call to go back to the land. And King Koresh even gives money, or he forces people to donate towards his effort. And the beginnings are very, very, very hard. You see it also in the uh, early periods of the Zionism, modern Zionism, where it was very hard to get anything done. A lot of resistance, and slowly the Jewish people realizing and 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 uh, taking part of it. So that's a lot of lot of similarities, and um, there's a lot of other prophecies that land will give its fruit. That yes, that they're old yep. old men, uh, right. uh, women right. sitting in the streets of Jerusalem, kids are playing. I mean, all these things are just happening from of our eyes. Correct, correct. It's amazing. And by the way, I always want always encourage people come. Not just come visit Israel, come visit us. And now you have a neighbor of mine who we also get to to meet in person. I uh, very recently hosted a delegation of uh, of leaders from Africa, um, and they were they they were blown away to see to be here in what I refer to as the original Bible Belt. I mean, right here right. out the window, you you overlook significant historical sites, and and we're in that. Um, something I want to move on to 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 the substance in terms of what you're doing but something else you said before shraga i just have to comment on because everything i I love i'm so glad that you brought up the prophetic component because those are all pull factors those are all uh the things that draw us to the land but we have to be present in in have the presence of mind and our faith 
to realize that yes, this is in fact happening. And we come back, as you said, like, like, like King David wrote, which is incredible how he wrote it before the first temple, right? Before the first temple was destroyed, before the first uh, diaspora. And he said, we're gonna come back and be like dreamers. Uh, and that's so amazing. But there, but there, there, and this will get into, this is actually a pretty good segue to get into what you're doing now. Over our history, there have been an abundance of push factors. And what we mean by that is Jews who have lived in the diaspora for thousands of years, never treated as equals, never able to live freely, never able to live without some form of persecution or forced conversions and, and pogroms and, and Holocaust in our history. And though, and and my my more recent, and the reason I'm sharing this and it's relevant for you, is even in the in our lifetime, this, the the movement to free Jews from the Soviet Union, where there was a cultural genocide, where Jews were not allowed to even live or practice as Jews, and for that reason, you use the word assimilation. I have to tell you a funny story, and so we have the push and pull. I came here because I wanted to be here. You came here because you wanted to be here, but for a million, million and a half, two million Jews from the Soviet Union uh, over so from the, from the 1960s through the 1990s. Many of them came because of the push because they couldn't live there, and as soon as they were able to get out of the Soviet Union, they came here because they had nowhere else to go. And that's the same with uh, maybe the same with with Holocaust survivors in Europe. You you, you went where you got a visa. Certainly, ideal ideological people came here to Israel, but if you got a visa to go to New York or a visa to go to Hong Kong or Australia, so you went to those places as well where you could survive. Fascinating story. A week ago, two weeks ago, I was at a reception and there was a very tall blonde woman I met and she's an ambassador from the Netherlands. And I did, I, we were talking and I did a double take looking at her. I said, wait a minute, did you ever serve in Moscow? And she hadn't. But in my stereotypical Dutch, this is what a Dutch woman, a non-Jewish woman would look like, taller than myself, blonde hair, cut short. She reminded me of an experience I had in 1985 in Moscow because the Dutch represented Israel's interests in Moscow at the time. And in order for Jews to get out, someone had to get into the Dutch embassy in order to receive an invitation from an officially a relative in Israel in order to be able to begin to get out. And I went into that embassy in Moscow in July here, we're talking in July of 1985. And I was able to, and I sat across the desk from this Dutch diplomat who knew exactly what I was there for. And I went through every name of every Jewish person I had ever heard of or who was in my uh, coded address book. And in the end, I walked out with one invitation and went and got to deliver it to the person that day. But it was such an amazing opportunity for me to relive that moment with a woman who wasn't the same woman, but representing what the, what the Netherlands did on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people back then. And that's a, maybe you want to respond to that, but um, that was just an amazing experience and because you were originally from there i just thought i would share it right um, the, the, the the netherlands had a period i think also driven by guilt feelings they had a period of uh grace of some 30 40 years after the holocaust and it was, it was quickly fading out after the six day war where they would be very pro-israel um unfortunately nowadays besides uh uh christians from the protestant communities um support for israel is very much dwindling they're not very against, but yeah, they were very proactive, supportive. Well, it's a it's an important piece of history to remember, and right. thanks to which, I don't know how many Jews live here now, but it, it was neat to have that experience and that little piece of Jewish history that right. I was a part of. But, but talking about P, uh, pull and push factors, I mean, you're a rabbi, so you you know you also know the famous saying from the from the Talmud that says that. Uh, the land of Israel is acquired with suffering. Yeah, meaning you, uh, you, there is a rule that you when you when you come to the land of Israel, you you become you have to become part of it. In order to become part of it, you have to suffer 
little bit personally, probably also on 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 a on a level of our people, um, but it's inherent of making aliyah, and of course. Any immigration is difficult, but it's a rule. And that that's what I think what makes it very hard, even if the circumstances are there, um, to come as uh, from ideology. Because your people are used to their lives. They're used to their whatever they're used to. They have wealth, uh, etc. Correct. Remembering uh, the Prophet Ezra, there's a, there's a story to, about it from the Midrash, from the, um, it's um, uh, a Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition, right. Um, that says that Ezra came to the where the Yemenite Jews lives today, uh, or until not so long yes. ago, and they he said, "Guys, pack your stuff and come to Israel." And then they said, "Yeah, but we have good business here. We have a right. lot of wealth." So then he cursed them. He cursed them that they would be forever uh, poor. Um, and then they cursed him that he would not be buried in the land of Israel. And and both both uh, both things uh, were realized. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't buried in Israel and. They were poor, I think, since since then. They, they have been living in very poor circumstances. Um, so that shows, these things show that it's not, even even if you have prophets, that real prophets saying to you guys, come on, come on, come to the land. Uh, yeah. Apparently the reality is not always uh, um, aligning with that. No, it's very hard. Even, even yeah. if you're motivated, even if you come here, I wanted to come to Israel since I was, a teenager and my wife from the same age and even with all of that and we're here almost we're here 19 years now right on one level it's it's nearly half of my life on the other level i feel like a new immigrant and that there are challenges before us every day and actually i'm glad you mentioned it because that's a great segue let's talk about what you're doing now but before i just have to clarify i'm not a rabbi um i'm called rabbi people say that for from respect but I don't. I I think that's a real super important um, title and honor, and I don't want anyone to think that I have ever been bestowed that in any official capacity. Um, okay, uh, Traga. So you're here. When when did you make Aliyah? What year? I don't know. Right. So I I came in 2005 after finishing high school. I stayed here for st- uh, religious studies, and I um, recruited to the army. Right. So I stayed here for a couple of years, and I went back to Amsterdam for studies because my wife was in the middle of studies. I mean, she wasn't my wife then, but we were already engaged and planning to get married. So I went back for uh, business studies to Amsterdam, and I made finally the the real Aliyah after living here for a couple of years. I and going back to Amsterdam for a while. I made Aliyah 12 years ago. So I live 12 years in the land. What about your experience making Aliyah, which is a blessing, but there are lots of challenges. You're an immigrant. Um, What set you up for what you're doing today, helping other people realize that privilege and opportunity? Right. So um, uh, making Aliyah from a small community, like European communities, um, you're basically alone. The Jewish agency processes your paperwork. Um, then you, you set foot in Israel. You have the Ministry of Aliyah and Klita, who the Ministry of Aliyah and Absorption, uh, an absorption that do some very first steps, uh, very partial. Um, there isn't, there isn't, uh, there isn't anyone you can turn to besides family or friends that, that if you have that network available, and right. people don't have that. So basically, you have to figure out stuff yourself. Now, I've served in the Golani Brigade. In Israel, so I, I I got my courses how to deal with Israeli bureaucracy, how how Israeli culture works, speaking the language, also very important. For those but, who don't know, Golani is one of the more elite um, uh, infantry brigades in the army. Right. So um, so I, I knew my way around, and um, what I did realize, being very Zionistic, and also being more and more convinced about the importance of Jews making Aliyah. Um, I was helping more and more people that turned to me for simple questions, more complex questions. So over the years, I've been helping other people, and I, I realized that it isn't that simple. You don't speak the language. You don't have your network. Correct. You don't understand how things work. Um, for example, in the Netherlands, if, if you have a government service and they say something, you actually, there's authority in you, adhere to authority. In Israel, it's not always like that. In Israel, they say you have to come Till nine, if you come at nine fifteen, it's also fine. I mean, you can still make it work. But you know, you having, can also show up at at, at quarter to nine and have, and a have somebody who's on break and not want to see you and and be 
confronted with somebody who's in a bad mood and not help you. Right, exactly. So uh, I, st- I studied in, in during my business studies a lot of cult- cross-cultural analysis. And that's also a very important uh, thing. People come here and they, they're used to a certain way of talking, of negotiating, of um, and they, they have a certain expectance also from other people. Also socially, like um, Israelis are very proactive. They would come up to you, they ask you personal questions. And they're very, they, they want, like for some people, it might be very intrusive. For others, uh, that's very nice, actually, because the people connect very quickly. Um, so there's a lot of differences that uh, that um, um, results in Olim, new immigrants here in Israel, um, not knowing how to deal with their situation, Correct. not knowing how to take care of themselves. Um, now, if everything is fine and you have money and you have things sorted out ahead, like Germans do many often, or Dutch people, like for the Western side of uh, Europe, then then you'll you'll survive it. But if you come from a country like Latin America, you would have had a good life there. But your your money is not worth a lot when you come to Israel. Now you speak Spanish or Portuguese. You don't speak so much English. Now in Israel they do speak English, Correct. but also not so good, not so well, and not everywhere. Also, also. So. But if you don't have, if your English not so well, or you don't speak any English, right, you're, you're, you're pretty much lost. I mean, you're right, right. You're, you're know, not getting by in Spanish or Portuguese or German um, or Dutch uh, right. or or I don't know. You're not going getting by now. Also, for example, people from Latin America, they're not used that the government is taking care of them. That they're not used that they're served. They're not used to um, look for these kind of services. Yeah. Um, they don't. They also don't know. They don't trust people. So. It also sure. really depends. It's also personally and per country differs, but um, the set of expectations and the world of values and beliefs differs per country. And what we right. try to do, we have people here, we speak six, seven languages. We have people that understand not only the language, but also understand where people are coming from. So when we say here, we're talking about your organization, Shivat Zion. Right. And I want to come back and talk about the breadth. I want to take a break and come back and talk about kind of the breadth because you're going into a great array. I mean, I'm sitting here as a new veteran immigrant relating to everything that you're saying and still feeling frustrated on so many levels. But I want to talk about what's the genesis and what you're doing. But let's let's take a quick break. The restoration of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel was an earth-shattering event. For Christians, it was a confirmation that God always keeps his covenantal promises. Today, We are blessed to see God's fingerprints in the modern miracle of the land of Israel playing out in our lives among the people and in the state of Israel. This year, on the occasion of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been privileged to bring together 75 Christian leaders from around the world to lend their unique voices, sharing their personal faith experiences relating to Israel and their in-depth insight into Israel's history and spiritual significance, creating an historical, one-of-a-kind, high-end coffee table book, Israel the Miracle. Israel the Miracle's stunning imagery will fill your home with the hope of fulfilled promises and conversations about Israel. It's a perfect gift to anyone for any occasion, and most of all, to yourself. You'll also be a blessing to Israel, knowing that the proceeds will go to bless Israelis of all backgrounds. Be a part of Israel the miracle and bring the land, the people, and the state of Israel into your heart and into your home. Visit IsraelTheMiracle.com to get your limited edition copy today. Okay, Shraga, before I before we pick up and, and continue, I want to mention you and I met and had a conversation. I don't know, it's probably been two months ago now before I was traveling and making time and my son's wedding uh recently and all the things and i and i'm really glad i'm really glad that we're having this conversation i don't want to forget that anyone listening one of the pillars of what we support as the genesis 123 foundation is aliyah bringing jews home and helping with the facilitation of that so anyone listening today who wants to be partners with what shraga is doing to help a specific unique immigrant community and now we're going to talk about what are the needs knows that they can write a check send a donation on our on the genesis 123 foundation website please please earmark it or you can write shraga for shivat zion for european jews spanish whatever you want to do 
but just know that this is our privilege. This is what we do, and it's our privilege to participate and uh, and partner. Um, before we took the break, Shraga, you were talking about just some of the cultural differences. And what's so fascinating is, unlike myself, American, you know, American Jews are culturally ninety percent the same, right? We've come, we've grown from the. You might come from a different city, and therefore, but but basically culturally the same. And I would imagine that's the case with French Jews and most Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and even the the the, the ancient Jewish tribes that are coming back from India and other places in the world. But you've got different cultures. There's a there's a different culture between every single country who you're helping immigrants come from. How does that play out? Well, it's, it's a very challenging, I have to tell you. Um, it is indeed a, a, a total different culture. If you deal with a person made Aliyah from, from Germany, it's a different world than an Italian. So um, I have to say, having a multicultural uh, team here, meaning because we our policies to serve the immigrants with people, people that are serving them, um, are people from the same culture, so they understand them. And sometimes in a in a team meeting here, where we have a Brazilian, uh, Argentinian, Italian, a German, a Swiss, uh, Dutch, uh, even the American, United Nations. it's the United Nations. Yeah, well, we we tend many times we don't understand each other. Meaning we we say that we say one thing, and every uh, everyone might uh, understand it in a little bit different way. Now we're all here for a while in Israel. We yeah. clarify things that we make sure so that. Um, that is something that's very important to understand that it is especially in could we put a lot of emphasis on personal support personal guidance when people are in hardship when people feel alone you have to listen to them you have to first make sure that they understand that they have the feeling that they're hurt um, and that can only be in their in in their in their own language or in a language they speak very well yeah. but more important than that that someone understands where they're coming from yeah why culturally. why why culturally why is it so hard for them why is it so hard for, for a German that gets told something by a government clerk to step up and say, no, I'm not agreeing to what you say. I, I, I'm going to demand something. Uh, we have to, that, that's a very important um, uh, emphasis. And the same for other, uh, for other cultures, even in Latin America or Central South America, there's differences between the countries. So it's very complex. It's not only the language, it's making sure that we understand the first thing that we do and we have very uh, strict working procedures, especially because we work with so many different people from different cultures. Um, we have a very strict procedure. First, identify first, who are we talking to? What is not only the person? Like people tend to ask a very specific question, a very technical question. We try to understand the broader picture. So who is talking to us? Is it one is it a single person? Is the family? What's the family build up? Are there special needs in the family? Are there other issues? Um, and then we have to understand the issue and not only the specific question, but also the underlying and everything that's around it. Um, just giving you a small, small example, um, a person uh, turning to us for something about um, social security benefit uh, for sick people. Um, so we, now that's a very technical question we could answer very technically. Now, if you dive deeper into it, we understood that there's a sudden uh, major illness in the family and it needs surgery. Um, there's also right. If issues. someone's asking that question, it's not an academic question. Right, it's exactly. Not, so, so there's something going on. So we end up making sure that they are connected to the social work, that they, they, get the, they get the support, they get also the social security they need, um, but also they're connected to the right factors in the government or NGOs or like just even private initiatives that that are able to help them out. Um, so we try to really be very holistic and be proactive in listening to the people and, and explaining to them what options they have in order to solve their issue, to succeed, um, et cetera. And that's, it's a very simple model on one hand, but it gets very, it's very time consuming. It's very important also uh, in order to let people thrive and succeed here. Because one of the worst things, we have a couple of pillars that are very important when making Aliyah, but um, one of the most important things is being connected to the community, having uh, sufficient employment, um, education for the children, um, if possible, speaking the language. Um, so these things, and of course, the finances and bureaucracy dealing, um, those things are the, are the pillars to succeed with Aliyah. Um, so can, you, can you point to a couple of things that you 
if I, I'm asking you, if I say, what are the top three things that you've done super well, or not not generally, but where the where are three big successes that you've had, not on a broad basis, but use an example, obviously anonymously. Right. So um, appealing government decisions, uh, governmental office decisions, saying someone is denied a specific service or a, a benefit or um, even a license or denied Aliyah, for example, um, and having a lot of experience, you understand, okay, this is not right. This is the profile of the person. This is the situation, like something went wrong here. It could be a lazy clerk. It could be a misunderstanding because of language gaps. It could be other misunderstanding. So stepping in there. And it could be also, for example, we had a, a family um, that didn't didn't have a good relationship with a social worker, a family with a special needs child. Oh, uh, Oh, social worker very damaging very very the social worker not speaking anything besides hebrew which is her full right because we live in israel right. of course but of course. she was working with someone from latin america who only spoke uh portuguese um there's someone thinking that because she's very wary of government services because she comes from a let one country in latin america is not so well organized um and then and then um she thinking that the social worker tries to get her kid out out place out of home and she doesn't want that to take uh, a, as foster child. Yeah, not foster, but taking out of custody or oh, wow. uh, something like this. And uh, a lot of distrust, a lot of fear. And in the meantime, she's very keeping the child very close to her. She's not able to work. Um, making so Being a single mom, making the situation even even worse. You know, it's a very simple thing, making sure that you that sit down with a social worker or with a supervisor, making sure that things are, are, are taken care of. Yeah. Um, so it's it's on one hand it's it's very complex and on the other hand it's very simple. If you know your way around, if you if know, you know right, your way around, and I like course. to think of myself, even though in 19 years I I am still not fluent, I still don't fully under I understand, but I understand that there are things in Israeli culture that I that are just not part of me um, that because I grew up and spent 40 years most of it in America. Um, Everything you're saying, you know, I can relate to, and 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 anyone listening, who I, oh, I, it's funny. I was in the shuk in Machane Yehuda a few weeks ago and bumped into a German family. I was talking to them, talking about, and I, I, I don't think there's a lot of future for Jews in in most of Europe and Germany, unfortunately, especially. And I said, come. They had a beautiful twelve-year-old girl celebrating her bat mitzvah. And the father started asking me really pointed questions. I said, no, it's not easy. You're an immigrant, but you'd be, you, you would have a different life if you, if you move from Berlin to Munich or, or Stuttgart or, or to, or to uh, London what? and certainly to Israel. And, and these are things that you, you're always going to have to get over them. And everything you're saying, I relate to. And, I, and anyone who's listening can, who, who can't relate to that, but can only move imagine moving from one city to another where they with the best scenario is they speak the same language and it's the same culture but it's right. still a new start right. but in many cases and, yeah you don't and it, it's very important to stress like there's two very important um numbers that um that drive us aside of the prophet prophetic and uh, uh the um great times we're living in yeah. Um, which are the uh, intermarriage or assimilation rates in the Jewish communities um, in Latin America being around 50 percent in, in, in Western Europe uh, being about 65, 70 percent, uh, which means that we are for, as a Jewish people, we're losing at least one in two people. Yeah. Um, and the assimilation rate in Israel is less than five percent. Um, and still, being in Israel, everything is Jewish. So, right. and, and and the appeal, the appeal for giving up your religion abroad is very, very strong. It's, it's very attractive not to be Jewish. Get, being a Jew is getting yourself in trouble in most cases. So, it's very important for us, every Jew, that 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 we can help to succeed and make aliyah and thrive here in Israel. Not going back um, is one, and and we're fighting for each one. Um, that having said that, um, you also have a when people already make Aliyah, um, and that's a major step, like you just mentioned, about um, 15 to 17% of those that are immigrating to Israel are leaving the country again. And I'm, I'm talking about um, the countries that we serve. 
So European and Latin American countries. So they come here, they try to get established. And they don't manage. And, and they, they don't back. manage and they go back 15 right. to 17%. Right. So, I mean, I studied business. So we always say uh, uh, retention of a customer is much, much, much easier and cheaper than Correct. winning a new customer. So you would be crazy uh, not to focus also to try to keep people here. But we do that a lot. We try, we're here for anything that they need, but it's big, small, technical, uh, emotional. Like we're here to, to to be for them and to help them and make sure that they get what they need. I, I want to come back to something and begin to wrap up, but you know, everything that you spoke about at the outset, the prophetic, you know, I get emotional thinking about it, right? The privilege of being here. Um you tell you tell me if I'm wrong, since I'm not a rabbi, we've established that. Um, but with all of the prophecies, I don't know that any prophet said, yeah, you're going to come here and the roads are going to be paved with gold. and You're not going to have any problems in life. You, you, you do. You are. You will. And, and, and so what you've taken on the responsibility is to make sure that we're not just realizing the prophetic visions prophecies but to do so as smoothly as possible right exactly i mean just like the prophets themselves they were they were not standing and just telling the people what to do they were involved in building and encouraging and 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 they were they were in the field so um of course we always need a practical um practical action yeah what what else do we need to know about what you're doing and the unique needs in and among the Jewish communities in Europe and Central and South America, which are not, which are largely not served without what you're doing? Right. Um, we need to know about uh, what well, we do. We, we, we always try to empower other organizations that, that do something specific, meaning if there's an organization that cares for employment for immigrants will try to intensify the cooperation with them in order to to for them to succeed help or more olim and also the olim that we we serve that's very important uh something else that's very important is that um the subject of encouraging aliyah is not spoken of so much in the communities abroad and that is again the things that we pointed out it's easy where people live, they, they're used to that. They have their businesses, they have their finances. So that's something that's very, very, very important um, to continue and remind people, guys, There's you have a country, you have a homeland, and it's very important that people come in peacetime. Even if if their uh, motivation wouldn't be the, prof- the prophecies and, ideo- and very big ideology uh, of Zionism, um, they have now a uh, uh, possibility to come easily, to plan it, to um to have a soft landing or a relatively soft landing um and things can change uh, well it's not just the landing it's making sure that once you land your luggage you know i'm speaking metaphorically but you get the, you, that you get your luggage and you get where you need to go and right but yeah. i have to i have to tell you uh following that we always try to work together with other organizations that israeli society is extremely 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 active uh when asked and when yeah. you succeed to make the connection because yes also that is a big, big issue a new immigrant doesn't know how to find the people that 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 want to help him correct they're very very proactive and very willing to help uh but so, when asked but they're but no right. one's knocking on your door saying what do you need but we know what the immigrants need and we know correct. the israeli society so with the connection um we we find we oh, every time we ask for volunteers or host families adoptive families Lovely. get an overwhelming response overwhelming we get too many people that want to help I'm, yeah. I'm i'm sorry i didn't grab the name of that man i met in the in the shook recently to tell him i didn't think to tell him about you it's okay we, we do a lot of marketing uh online also so eventually god willing will get to us and we'll Great. help him in German and with uh, group, we also make sure that their works are all very enthusiastic about Aliyah. They're empathic. They're enthusiastic. They're happy that people want to take this step. You're here to be the pull factor to bring Jews who have a reason to want to come home and make that possible. And and maybe it's not right to end. Or I don't know if this is exactly the ending of the conversation, but close to end on a negative note. But is there a future for Jews in Europe? 
I don't think there's a future for Jews anywhere outside of the land of Israel. Um, okay, I mean, good. I, looking at it, not because of anti-Semitism, it's because the assimilation. If you talk about the 50, 60, 70%, I don't know how much is, is in America. I think, I guess also something about 70%. Um, they, that, that, that number shows there's no future. Also, the religion, the Jewish religion um, outside of the land is just something so that we remind, that's what the Jewish uh, tradition says, that the uh, whole religion and practice is something that for us to remind when we come back to the land. You also see that the Jewish religion fits the land. Uh, the commandments and the, the festivals, they're all, yeah. they're yeah. all around the land. And that's also something you realize when you make Aliyah, actually, when you live here. You realize how much it fits and that how much, much it doesn't fit abroad. So my personal opinion is that there's no future for Jews outside of uh, Israel, but not in a sad way. I, I, I want to say it in a, in a, in a positive, on a positive note, but the intermarriage and, and assimilation is extremely high. So the Jews are disappearing themselves in a very high uh, pace. So I am afraid there's no, there's no future for Jews. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm glad you said it not in a sad way, but on a positive note, because now we're 75 years into the state. We've built this magnet and it's not perfect, but, right. but it is a, it, it is the best, most incredible society uh, with, with its problems. And, and it is a magnet for Jews. And, and until uh, you know, well, there are, there are good reasons to leave where people are, but there's a, many 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 better reasons to come here proactively and be part of it and when you and i first met several weeks two months however long ago it was and we talked about this um and coming from the perspective of a of being an immigrant just have a lot of respect and gratitude um and 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 i love that you always are coming back to the positive approach that this is we're building we're bringing people home and and this is our job. And and I again, I want to encourage everyone listening. Use us and the Genesis One Two Three Foundation through which to make a donation, so we can support Shivat Zion, so we can support bringing Jews home, and and not just bringing them, but making sure that their absorption is successful, um, even with all of the bumps that come right. along the way, just by virtue of having made a move to a country that may be a few or several thousand miles away with a different culture, with a different environment, with a different language. Um, all of those have their challenges, but with all of that have untold blessings. Um, Traga, really, I you, you know how difficult it was for me to schedule this because of things, my traveling and my son's wedding, but it was a priority and I'm glad we did. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really glad we did. I've, I've enjoyed this, and I hope that everyone else uh, listening um, has as well. Um, and yeah, thank you for, for being a guest today and making the time. Thank you very much. So as we always say for the last couple of years, if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward other than this very rewarding conversation. So all we're asking, the reward is here. It's like this. Follow and like Inspiration from Zion on all of your social media. When you share or cop, when you share or comment on a, the link to this podcast, we pick one person at random to receive what we a book, what we call from Jonathan's bookshelf. I don't let people here into my office very much. It doesn't have all of the books that I used to have, but everything is Jewish, Israel, tr- Jewish Christian relations. And I actually haven't figured out what book I'm giving it, giving it away this month. But I do want to ask you, please comment and share and like this so we can continue the conversation to widen it. And someone, one of you listening, is going to get a lovely book from my bookshelf. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willowrun Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area and want to stop in and thank them for helping make conversations like this possible, please do so. And also special thanks to our coin, to, to the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship as well. Inspiration from Zion, like all of the Genesis 123 Foundation programs, are made possible by donations. So consider joining us to help the continued dialogue and building bridges. 
Um, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion or a great nonprofit that's bringing uh, Jews home and helping make that smooth for, for people, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear your comments as part of an ongoing dialogue. It's hard, it's hard to have a dialogue on a podcast, so we really do want to hear from you. And we invite you to send questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this program with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here, where we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy, and I send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah, al-mashayah, al